Well, we're going to continue in our series. We want to welcome our online campus as well. The series entitled How to Live on Purpose. And the very simple premise of this is at the end of this year, you're going to end up somewhere in terms of your life, your relationship with God, your relationships, and we'll be speaking to that next week, your family and friends, your finances, your work life, your everyday life, your overall well-being. And God wants us to finish this year well. God always wants us to finish well. And Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no prophetic vision, divine guidance is the meaning of the term, people cast off restraint. And I believe God is always wanting to speak into our lives, to lead us, to guide us, to prompt us. And sometimes it's out of the instruction of Scripture directly that it's just, well, that's a step of obedience I need to take. I love something that Craig Groeschel says, that everybody ends up somewhere, but not everybody ends up somewhere on purpose. So at the end of this year, you're going to end up somewhere. The question is, is it on purpose? Is there some intentionality around it? And today we're going to jump into the deep end, as it were, and we're going to talk about our financial life. We've talked about a whole lot of other things, but we're going to talk about our financial life. And somebody's here going, oh, why did I come to church today? They're going to talk about money. But God is not silent on the subject of money, material things, and our responsibility as human beings to be good stewards of what's entrusted to us. There are, for example, 215 verses in the Bible speaking to faith. 218 in terms of salvation as to whether you have a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are over 2,000 on financial or material stewardship. So God understands it's a big part of our lives. And while one or two may be going, yeah, all right, but why do we have to talk about it? I'd suggest to you that you talk about money, material things, financial things every single day of your life in one form or another. So it's a topic that is common to all of our lives. We deal with it every single day. And so I want to just talk about some principles around our financial life. If you've ever been under financial pressure, it is grinding. It is unrelenting. And God wants us to know how to handle the resources entrusted to us, the stewardship. And getting into bigger debt is not the solution. And we're finding that out now as interest rates are going up. Isn't that an exciting thing going on in our world at the moment? But Australia has one of the highest, world highest, household debt ratio to their income. For most Australians, on average, you're the exception, you've got everything under control, we know, um, they owe $187 for every $100 after tax that they earn. So they're getting further behind. They're not making an impact. The interesting thing with COVID is actually people did use that opportunity to pay down debt, but the cycle is now reversing back to the old trend again. And what we're simply saying is most people have more month than they do money. And that sense of living on the edge all the time. And we want to jump into this and look at something that Jesus said. And it's quite challenging. It's quite direct. 
And we love gentle Jesus, meek and vile, but at times he just looks straight at us, full of grace, but full of truth and says, hey, you need to pay attention to this. So in Luke 16 and verse 10, he's doing a whole lot of teaching on stewardship. And he says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And then here comes the punchline. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word is mammon in the Greek, God and money. Money is a good translation there. And the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and ridiculed Jesus. No one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And as I said, the word money, it's translated in our English translation is the Greek word mammon. Actually, it's an Aramaic word. And it describes the personification of riches to be a God, a small g God. The God of materialism is the way Jesus speaks of it in Scripture here. And there are three P's in mammon, and I'm not going to go off on a tangent on them, but prestige, power, and possessions. Those are the three things that make up this concept of the God of mammon. And God's chief competitor for our hearts is not the devil directly, it's actually mammon. Pre prestige, power and possessions. They the thing. And if the devil can get you obsessed with that, he's got a way of getting you distracted from God and from what God has for you and the prophetic vision that God has for your life. Just think about it. The chief competitor for your heart is not Satan worship, but that you worship things, possessions and privilege and prestige. You see, we've got to decide whether material things are going to be a master over our lives or a servant that we use to glorify God. Somebody said Francis Bacon, advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, money is a great servant, but a bad master. So God, and you read the scripture, God is not against. He's not saying every one of us should be poor and, and not have anything. In fact, the Bible says he's given us all things richly to enjoy. It's whether it masters you or in the name of Jesus, you master it. Money is a great servant, but a bad master. G. Campbell Morgan, who's referred to as the Prince of Preachers, said this, when God is served... Mammon, material things, is used to bless. When mammon is served, the claims of God are ignored. Now that's something worth thinking. And the reality is that money and material things take on the character of the person who owns it or controls it. So uh, a $50 note, 
Who's got one here? Oh, give it back. Now, if you pulled out a note, it is indifferent. It's impartial. It's whose hand is it in? In somebody who is buying food for the household, it's a servant there. If somebody's blessing somebody else, it's generosity because it's coming from a generous heart. But the same $50 bill in the hands of a drug dealer with somebody else takes on the character of that person. So money is not evil and the Bible actually doesn't say money is evil. Listen to what it actually says in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. For the love of money, the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for greed have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that's the internal struggle that we often have is, God, I want to be a good steward of what you've entrusted to me in all the material things that I have, but I don't want it to occupy the throne of my heart. And we've probably all vacillated at times in that choice, that decision of what's going to be master, Lord of our lives, material things or God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in 1 Timothy and chapter 6, Paul is given a lot of good advice on financial things. And he says this to Timothy, a young pastor, he says, now you need to tell your congregation about these things. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, just in those few verses, there's a whole lot of stuff that we can unpack. And I'm just going to one or two things. He says, it's all right to be rich in this present world, but don't be arrogant and put your trust in what you have. You need to put your trust in God who has blessed you with what you've had. It's a really simple concept, but one that if you settle it in your heart becomes an incredible, powerful thing. And also he says here that God has richly provided all these things for our enjoyment. So God's not against the things. The problem is when things become the God of mammon and it occupies the throne of our hearts rather than the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And he says, if you have wealth, then be rich with that, but also be rich in good deeds. Use it to change other people's lives. So it's not an attitude, well, I just want to have enough for myself and my family. No, we should be believing for that, but also say, God, I want to be able to have something for others as well, to change the lives of others. And we can't change everybody's life, but we can all make a difference in someone's life. And he says, so tell them to be rich in good deeds, and generous and willing to share. And it's simply coming down to a little thought that I hope sticks with you of how we include God in the material things in our lives and literally to pray before you pay. Now, we'll forget that some days. 
We'll rush in, we'll make some decisions, we'll do things and go, oh, why did I do that? So this is not a law. This is not about putting guilt, but just that thought, God, help me to be prayerful and thoughtful about how I deal with my finances. Help me to put you at the center of it as I'm a steward, as I make provision, as I pay off a house, as I put aside some savings and my superannuation and all of that. But Lord, also help me to be kingdom-minded where I've got something that's kind of set aside for others. You see, you'll never drift into financial freedom. You'll never drift into financial freedom. You've got to do things intentionally. And one of the things, and because as I said, there's 2,058 verses we've got to get through today. No, we're not going to do that. But what I'm saying is the Bible actually has a lot to say on the topic of material things. And one of the great things with this church is we've got the cap money course, which teaches you budgeting and a whole lot of biblical principles. We've also got a small group thing called God, Me and Money, where it it just talks about, again, how to set yourself up financially. It's not all about giving. That's an aspect of it in both the courses. But but it's about how do I actually manage the financial and, and material things that God has entrusted? How do I be a good steward? And I'd highly recommend as those courses come up or even if you're in a small group or you want to start a small group, life groups are an important part of what we do as a church, connecting uh, on a more one-to-one basis. You can say, I want to be able to do that, that course. And all you have to do is talk to Brian over there. Brian, stand up. They won't miss you if you stand up. Um, can you see him in the dark there with his... He's a pretend all black, that's part of the trouble right there. But it was life groups and Danielle, who I think is away at the moment, uh, talking about doing the the cab money course and we do promote it. And and they will sort some things if you're struggling in this area. So you got to decide, is it God or mammon who will master your life? Is the material things going to be a master or servant in your hands? And in the book of Haggai, the prophet, a minor prophet with a major message, calls out to the people of Israel and down through time, perhaps he's calling out to you and I today and saying, consider your ways. Listen to this. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5 to 6. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Another translation says, consider your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Now, clearly, he's speaking to an agricultural society there, but I'm sure you and I can get the gist of it. He says you're working and working and you're trying to advance your life. And every time you do, it just seems to fritter away. There's another crisis, financial, another bill, another this. And he says, consider why this is happening. And he's clearly speaking to the nation at the time about financial issues. And he says, the problem is, and you can read the book for yourself. The problem is, he said, you're not putting God first in your 
stewardship of material and financial things. And he says, consider your ways. The word, the phrase, consider your ways in the Hebrew is literally to put your heart on your road, which sounds like a, like, what do you actually mean by that? But it's talking about if God gets your heart first, your thinking, your behaviour, your attitudes will follow. You can learn some things. Yeah, you still might make a few mistakes in this, but if you put your heart on the road, the purpose, the destiny, the vision, the prophetic thing that God's wanting to do in your life. It's the starting point of sorting this out where it's no longer stuff just frittered away and you think, I'm not making any advance in my financial stewardship. You see, what he's identifying is the irrepressible law of consequence of sowing and reaping. And we're going to come back to that in a way. But Jesus, when speaking about financial things, also made it first and foremost an issue of the heart, not an issue of the head. Now, hear me carefully on that. God gave you a brain. Please use it. (laughs) I'm just trying. It's not about abandoning your brain. Oh, it's all hard. No, it's both. But if you Commit your heart to the ways of the Lord. Then your thinking will be different. Your attitudes, your response to the instructions of Scripture, your your response to whether Jesus is Lord or the God of Mammon is master of your life. Jesus put it this way for in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, Your life will follow the things that you love. And if you love God and the things of God, he says, put your heart in that. And then you see God begin to work. And so I ask the question, what has captured your heart? What controls your heart when it comes to, I guess, every part of life, but we're talking about the financial aspect, the stewardship of our life. And so I want to give just three key principles Like I said, there's over 2,000 verses. We're not doing that today. Everybody said, thank you, Jesus. But three things, and they come to this, that whole idea which I've already introduced of putting God first. The second is a powerful principle is the first, when it comes to financial and material things, blesses the rest, and that'll make sense in just a moment. And then the law of seed time and harvest which God has put into place. So let's talk about the whole thing of putting God first. Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Here in a more modern translation, make your top priority God's kingdom and his way of life and all these things will be given to you as well. I want you to notice God is not against the things if you've put him first. Because the first and the prioritizing of God says everything I have is under his control, under his lordship. I recognize that even my job, my my resources actually come from the hand of God. My trust is in him. Make your top priority God's kingdom and his way of life. And all these things will be given to you as well. And so I want to ask, 
Got a whole lot of visitors in the place today. Is God your top priority? And maybe you're on a spiritual journey and you're not quite ready to answer that question. And that's all right. Keep walking, keep asking, keep searching, keep attending if you can. But maybe you're at that place where, no, I'm about ready to make that decision to make Jesus both my Lord and my Saviour. And if that is the case, you'll be given an opportunity today to respond to Jesus in that way. But the whole thing of putting God first. On the 31st of January, about 41 years ago, this coming January, it'll be 42 years, Linda walked down the aisle to get this prize. (laughs) Don't laugh, that's not nice. Out of about 3.5 billion guys, she chose me. Come on, she chose me. (laughs) And in her vow, she said something to the effect, Sean, you're the man. (laughs) You are first out of 3.5 billion others. And how would it be if I had in response said, Linda, Out of 3.5 billion women, you're about second or third, maybe in the top 10. Do you think I'd still be here? (laughs) And I want you to catch the, the response you had to that. If that were to be said to somebody, Because in a way, second or third, or even in the top 10 out of 3.5 billion, is not bad. But it's totally wrong in a covenant relationship. Because a covenant relationship, which marriage is, says, I put you first. And our relationship with God is meant to be a covenant relationship sealed by the blood of Jesus, who died for us to wash us clean from our sins. And it's not good enough If you've made that commitment, if you're not yet ready, we get that. You're cool to make that decision, to work it out, as I've said earlier. But if you made that commitment, it's not all right then to say, Jesus, you know, you're about second or third. That's pretty high up in all the things that are going on in my life. Jesus says, no, I want to be first. I want to be number one in your life. Many years ago, I was preaching in Papua New Guinea and heading back there in November for a visit, I haven't been for a long time. And uh, I was very young and inexperienced, just about 10 years ago. No, it was a lot longer ago in the 80s. And I was preaching with an interpreter and I love preaching English and uh, it's very challenging to speak well, but you start picking up the gist of things. And uh, I was being quite dramatic and about how wonderful Jesus is. And I said, Jesus is Lord. And the interpreter said, Jesus is number one. And I said, Jesus is amazing. And the interpreter said, Jesus is number one. And I said, Jesus is, and I used some other adjective. And he, no matter what I said, it took me a while to get with it. He just translated it, Jesus is number one. And I suddenly had this thought that I believe was from the Holy Spirit. We can use all flowery words about Jesus. And it's good to be creative in our praise and our worship, in the things that we acknowledge. But the real question is, is he number one? Is he number one? 
And one of the ways that we put God first in material things is with our tithe, the first tenth of our income. There's this principle and goes all the way through Scripture and there's in the courses you can explore this and argue with it if you want, it's fine. Uh, engage with Scripture. But it says this, speaking to the nation, a tithe, a tenth of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. He, he said, Israel, you've got to get this right. And I believe down through time, this principle still applies. If you put God first, He's the first thought about how you distribute your finances. What am I going to surrender to God? Because if I give the first, then I've declared Jesus, you are Lord. If my giving comes simply to an afterthought, what's left over, He's not actually Lord of all. And the tithe, the Scripture says, is holy. It's a sacred thing. The word is devoted. It's a devoted thing to the Lord. And one of the ways we put God first is through the tithe. And it's not just about a percentage. It's about where we place God in our lives. In Deuteronomy 14 and verse 23, and from the Living Bible, which is a paraphrase, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your life. And in that whole budgeting thing to sit down and say, okay, what am I going to set aside for God first? And I encourage the concept of the 10%. And we can have a fuller discussion on that some other time about the tithe and whether it's only Old Testament, New Testament. It's cool. We can do that. The principle I'm talking about is what do we do to demonstrate that God is first in the material things in our life? Not just an afterthought, not just, oh, what have I got left over? No, God, I'm doing this to demonstrate that I'm putting you first in my life. And in that very action, you dethrone the God of mammon. You say, I'm not obsessed with material things. I understand the importance of stewarding them. I understand the importance of budgeting. I understand the importance of planning things. But God, I put you first. It's a spiritual decision first and foremost. And I want you to know there's a church we practice this. We make sure that at the very least 10% of all our general tithes and offerings go to things outside of us. In other words, we don't consume it. And on average, we sit around 16 to 18% of the income that comes in is given to others, not consumed by ourselves because we believe in this principle of tithing, of putting God first in finance. So putting God first, which leads to this incredibly powerful promise or biblical concept, a spiritual law, that the first blesses the rest. God made first things holy, and there's a whole teaching from the Old Testament that knew about that. But listen to it kind of summarised in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, and I'm dropping down to verse 10 without reading every verse, and it doesn't change the essence. You can go back and check the Scripture and see if I was true to the, 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 the core thing in this. So Proverbs 3, in everything you do, put God first, and He will direct you 
and crown your efforts with success. You see, what you do first with God blesses the rest. In everything you do, put God first and He will direct you and crown your efforts with success. Honour the Lord by giving Him the first part of your income and He will fill. And again, the barns and the vats, it's an agricultural society, but that He will then fill up the rest of your life. Put Him first. In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, God has a very serious conversation with the nation of Israel who are drifting away and kind of starting to backslide. And he asked them a series of questions. And one of them in chapter three comes down to the issue of finances. And he says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for your blessing until there's no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, says the Lord of hosts. I encourage you to read that passage kind of as homework, reflect on it, ask the Lord just to speak to you. Don't get the guilts about it, but just open your heart to a conversation with God from His Word. God says to the nation, you are cursed with a curse. And I'll, I'll touch on that in a moment. He says, you're robbing me. And they are indignant saying, what way did we rob you? He said, you don't bring your tithe, the first. You don't bring the tenth to me anymore. And he says, bring it in and you can put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I'll open the windows of heaven, pour out blessing and I'll rebuke the devourer for your sake. So let's deal with this curse thing because it's kind of like, oh, that's a bit awkward. Through the sin of Adam and Eve, creation was cursed. Sin entered the world and we see the decay and the pain and all of that that flows on from that. And apart from Christ, and I want you to get this, apart from Christ, we still live under the curse. I'm speaking as humanity as a whole. But the Bible says in Galatians that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So it's not God going around, you're cursed, you're cursed because you didn't give, you're cursed. That's not what God's saying. He says there's a curse that settled on creation because sin entered the world. And you, most of us struggle in that, dealing with it. But when you say yes to Jesus, you are freed from that curse as you seek to honour the Lord in everything you do. And the reality is when we rob God by not being generous in our giving first to Him, in putting Him first, we actually impoverish ourselves, we rob ourselves. God doesn't curse us, disobedience does and leaves us to deal with the devourer in our own strength. I want you to notice that God says, you bring the tithe, two things. One, you can test me. Everywhere else in Scripture, we are forbidden to test the Lord, to try His patience. Now, he's extraordinarily patient with us and gracious. But in giving, he says, you can actually put me to the test and see what I do in response to your act of faith of putting me first in your finances. 
And he says, I will open the windows of heaven, pour out a blessing on you. And here's the thing in terms of the curse. I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. So when you don't put God first in financial things, you fight the devourer in your own strength. I'm very quiet in here. You fight the devourer in your own strength. But when you put God first in your giving, God says, I'll deal with the devourer. I will pour out blessing in your circumstances. And every time we receive income, there's a test going on. One, God tests us. What are you going to do? Are you going to put me first? And we get to test God and say, God, I've put you first. Now, what are you going to do in my life? Pour out a blessing. It's almost like God is saying, see, if you give to me, makes you poorer. See if you can outgive me is almost, well, not almost, that is a challenge he puts out. The final point, the law of seed time and harvest. Genesis 8 and verse 22 says this, as long as the earth endures, just quick question, is the earth still enduring at the moment? It may be groaning, but it's enduring, agree? As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, we know all about that in Canberra at the moment, the cold. Summer and winter. What's summer again? I forgot. <laughs> as long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Day and night, this principle of sowing and reaping. Paul picks up on this New Testament in 2 Corinthians. And I want to read the words and let them just impact you without much commentary at all. Paul says to the church at Corinth, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart. This is not just emotional giving, this is intentional. You decide, but it's from the heart first. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly, nor under compulsion. So it's not about your arm being twisted. It's not about I uh, have to. No, it's a, I want to. I understand this principle of generosity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. See, God doesn't want to live us, us to live under anxiety and financial pressure. You may go through a season of it, but I can guarantee you put these biblical principles in place and you will see the windows of heaven poured out. You, you will still need to work. Work is a blessing. It was touched on earlier and something we've been looking at in our devotional and I spoke to last week about this. As the musicians come, I want to read one final passage. And the context of it is Jesus is talking about trust. He's talking about God's provision. It's in the context of the passage, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And Jesus pauses and he says to those who are listening, the Sermon on the Mount, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, or store away in barns. 
and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? He says, just look how God provides for the birds of the air and know you are worth way, way more, so much more that God sent His Son to die for us, to take our punishment so He could forgive us and heal us and set us free. But he says this, and I was thinking about it and it suddenly had another insight into it. Look at the birds of the air that they provided for and you're worth more value than them. But he says, they do not sow or reap, but you and I can. We're not the birds of the air. And in that agricultural society, a farmer would clear the field of rocks, would plough it up, organise a water source, build a wall around it from the rocks that in order to protect it and then scatter seed, not modern day farming method, but scattering seeds and the birds would go, yes, there's some seed there. They didn't sow it. They feeding off what somebody else sowed. But the farmer sows and even though he knows the birds are going to take some of the seed, he's expecting a return because of this eternal principle. As long as the earth remains, sowing and reaping, seed time and harvest. The birds of the air don't sow and reap, but you and I can. And I feel, and I want to be a little bit direct on this, is that some of us live as the birds of the air and God looks after us because He loves us. But in terms of becoming a kingdom-minded person who does much more and exerts greater influence, don't live just like the bird birds of the air, feeding off what somebody else has sown. Become somebody who intentionally sows and reaps. Linda and I, it's one of the principles, and I'll just close with this. We set aside our tithe, but then there's a, an additional percentage that just gets paid into an account. And it's kind of the what if account. It's an account that anytime we feel prompted to give something, there's money there. It's not like an emotional thing, it's planned. That extra percentage is set aside for generosity. And we've seen God being able to do things through us that have been a blessing, but also the return is extraordinary. And I'm not saying, so a dollar, you get 10 in return. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the fullness of what God does in your life. Everybody ends up somewhere, but not everybody ends up somewhere on purpose. How about some intentionality around your financial life. And some of you are going, that was just a good reminder. Others, you feel very challenged. And it's not about making you feel guilty. It's about opening your eyes to some biblical principles, inviting you to do cap money or to do the, the series that we're doing life group, God, me and money, so that you can learn some more and then make an informed decision about how you structure and manage the material things in your life. But I do know this, and we're going to have a moment to pray for people. That unless you enact these basic principles, and I'm talking about first and foremost, of making sure that mammon is not your God. Mammon is not on the throne of your life, but you've put God first and started taking steps of faith in that. We can pray for breakthrough and breakthrough in finances until we are exhausted. But you're gonna be like 
the people in Haggai holds in your pocket. And God says, just think about it. Is it working for you? Consider your ways. Or is it, hey, we need to start making a decision about becoming more intentional in our giving and making sure the first of our income goes to the Lord. That it's the first thing we consider, not the afterthought.